Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is May 16th of 2013, Thursday, and tonight our guest is Beverly Buncher, who has a program called Being a Loving Mirror that she's going to tell us a lot more about. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduce drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Beverly Muncher, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Beverly? Very well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing good. Well, thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Well, could you tell us a little bit about the work you do? Yes. Uh, I'm a family recovery coach, and I help family members deal with their loved ones' drug and alcohol challenges. Okay, and how does this fit in with harm reduction? Well, just as um, you know, Alanon says that you can't. It's not about the drinker; it's really about you. A lot of my focus with families is on getting their heads together, getting them to see that they're obsessing about somebody else's behavior is not working. And then when it comes to harm reduction, you know, the fact of the matter is that the person who's using the substances is at choice as to what they want to do. And the family member can be more useful in the process when they know about different approaches so that if the person decides to take a harm reduction approach or they see them moderating their drinking, instead of flipping out, the family member can say, oh, I see you're trying to do harm reduction. And they can work with the person. Maybe tell them about your book or about some of the other wonderful books that are out about harm reduction. So the work that I do is open to many different forms of recovery, and harm reduction is certainly one of them. Well, you know, the traditional approach certainly has not been very friendly to harm reduction. You know, if the person that's drinking, for example, say that they like alcohol is their drug of choice, and if they say, well, I'll stop drinking and driving because I think drinking and driving is really stupid, but I don't want to stop drinking. I want to keep drinking the same amount, you know, and it's not supported at all on a traditional approach. That's very true. That's very true. Well, recovery coaches are a bit different. We are open. So we support people who wish to pursue the traditional approach, and we help them with it, and we support people who wish to uh, use alternative approaches, and we're willing to help them as well. And see, my specialty is working with the family. So um, although I do sometimes work with addicts or alcoholics who want to reduce use, and even the word addict or alcoholic is a word that I use by habit, but not everyone who has challenges with drinking or drugging is an addict or alcoholic. Um, I'm aware of that, and you know i'm I'm pretty much open to what is going on in the family and with the addict, and that's what's different about a recovery coach rather than a traditional uh, 
clinician, perhaps. You know, I really don't like the words addict or alcoholic at all. I just find them to be hate speech. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I know that there's been a lot written lately that the labels are hurtful and that they do not help. Um, I think, you know, I try to use words like struggling loved one, but I have to admit that sometimes I do use the word addict and alcoholic, and I'm, I appreciate your sharing that. Uh, I will continue to try to be more careful. You know, I talk more about, um, well, my, my way of characterizing it, I like to talk about people that use drugs or alcohol. And some people, their use is problem-free, and some people, their use is accompanied by problems. And, you know, when the use is problematic, then what you want to do is to eliminate the problems. Sometimes the way to eliminate the problems is to eliminate the use. Sometimes, you know, people find, you know, hey, when I stop drinking, my problems go away. Mm-hmm. That's a really good answer. And they say, you know, I, I get this a lot with people in my organization. And, you know, we say, you know, what is, do you want to take some time off? And, you know, people, almost everybody that comes in says, you know, yeah, it'd be a good idea to take some time off. And eventually almost everyone tries an alcohol-free period. Sometimes it's a week. Sometimes it's a month. And a lot of those people say, you know, all my problems went away when I stopped drinking. I think I want to do this for good. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it is more respectful not to label people. That is true. So how, how does, um, what does it mean to be a loving mirror? What is your program all about? Well, the idea of of being a loving mirror is that when, you know, a lot of times when someone has a friend, a relative or a friend who's drinking or drugging, <clears throat> excuse me, they get really worried and really scared of what might happen. And when the consequences are either harmful or annoying or difficult to bear, the family member or friend will freak out. They'll yell, they'll scream, they'll beg, they'll nag, they'll do whatever they can to get the person to stop but lo and behold, it doesn't work. To be a loving mirror is to take a completely different approach. The first thing that a loving mirror does is a loving mirror learns how to calm themselves. Usually this involves developing a spiritual practice that um, could be anything from meditation to prayer to contemplation. It might be breathing exercises. It might be yoga something that allows the person to have a calm center. And on that basis, the loving mirror observes what they're seeing, their loved one doing, whereas before they might be, as soon as they see it, have a reaction, now they observe it, and they don't necessarily say anything while the behavior is going on. Instead, they're observing it. It's like they're taking mental notes about it. And... They're watching their own inner reactions. Are they getting upset? Are they freaking out? And instead of focusing on fixing the other person's behavior, they're regulating their own reactions. And when the time is right, perhaps the next day, they sit down with the person and they say, yesterday I noticed that you came in the house. Here's an example. I noticed that you came in the house and you started uh, throwing things around and, Um, You were looking for 
something to drink and you couldn't find it and you pulled the house apart completely and then you finally found something and you drank it all down and you threw up and you just fell asleep. And the other person might say, yeah, I see the house is a mess. Why didn't you clean it up? So a loving mirror would say something like, well, for two reasons. Number one, you might not have remembered what happened and and you need to be able to be aware of your consequences. And number two, it's not really my job to clean up after you. So when you uh, when you are in a balm state of mind, as we call it, be a loving mirror, uh, you are someone who is a truth teller. You share the facts that you are seeing. You unemotionally, if there's any emotion at all, it's compassion, love, but there's no anger, there's no rancor, there's no judgment. You're sharing with the person what you've seen, you're being their eyes and ears in case they don't remember or are having a hard time facing it on their own. I was wondering, uh, did you, are you familiar with uh, Robert Meyer's craft approach? Uh, yes, I, I, I've heard of it. I haven't read his book, but I, I recently uh, got it. I think it's very compatible with what you're talking about because, mm-hmm. you know, even in the title it says it's alternatives to nagging and pleading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nagging and pleading, uh, instead of having the intended effect, they always have the opposite effect, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, when you nag and plead and when you yell at a person, you're almost giving them an excuse, not that, it's your responsibility, but they now have, have you know, they can say, well, if you had a wife like that, you'd go out and drink too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I specifically didn't read the book when it came out because I was writing my books, and they're up on the web now on the um, familyrecoveryresources.com site, and I didn't want to get mixed up with his stuff and my stuff. But now that the books are up, I'll I'll take a a look and read those books. Yeah, I, I I have a very similar approach from what I saw on the cover in that I do believe that families can have a tremendous impact on whether or not a person chooses recovery to whatever extent they choose it and whether or not they are able to maintain it. The family, If the family is toxic, it can have a very negative effect on a person struggling with substances and if they are a healthy family it can have a positive effect that's just you know how we interact as humans yeah i think a spouse can have a great influence on a drinker or drug user's uh, decisions if they approach it uh properly which is you know i didn't i never quite agreed with the alanon thing of you know just detach because and say there's nothing you can do. Well, of course there are things you can do. Yes, there are. Yeah, and there, you know it's funny when I got into Al-Anon almost 30 years ago. At my first meeting, a lady came up to me and said, "I want to tell you something right now." She looked me in the eyes. She pointed at me and she said, "Most of us, a year to a year and a half from the time we get into Al-Anon, our loved ones get sober. So you pay attention and you do the right thing, and yours will too." And I've never heard of anybody saying that to anybody, but that was the first message I got at Al-Anon. And 
in those days, they talked about the four C's. You didn't cause it. You can't control it. You can't cure it. But you don't have to contribute to it. And I put a big emphasis on contributing, that the families can contribute to the problem or they can contribute to the solution. Mm -hmm. And um, what Be a Loving Mirror programs teach is how to contribute to the solution, how to help your loved one make better decisions. Um, you know, I just think it's it's the family plays a, plays a vital role and, in fact, can be the most important people in the decision. Um, in fact, one of the little sayings that we have in the Be a Loving Mirror program is you are your loved one's best chance at recovery. So what are that. what are specifics of how you can contribute to the solution? Well, just as we said, when they come home, instead of yelling, screaming, threatening, a really important thing is not to make idle threats. If you make threats and you don't follow through on them, what the person learns is that your word means nothing. You know, and so the next time they do something you don't like and you tell them what the consequence is going to be and they don't pay any attention to it. So if you're going to set a boundary, if you're going to give a consequence, be ready to give it and to follow through. It's not just about setting a boundary, it's about sticking to it. So that's very important. Tone of voice is another thing that's very important. And tone of voice really, and all of these principles are on the foundation of having a calmness within you. Because you can't maintain rational behavior for very long if you don't have a calm frame of mind. So really a lot of what the family can do for their loved one is based on their own frame of mind. And in this whole thing about detach with love, I think you detach from the behavior, not from your role in helping the person. So if if I'm the loved one and uh, my spouse comes home or my family member comes home and they're intoxicated and they're behaving in ways that are making me start to feel really angry, what should I do? So you have a few choices. Um, if you have been practicing your balm techniques, you've got some, you have a sense of what you need to do. The first thing that you need to do is say hello. And the second thing you need to do is get out of their way. They're doing their thing. You don't need to be telling them. You don't need to have a conversation with them when they're in an inebriated state about anything important. You don't need to be saying, what are you doing? Why are you home so late? Where have you been? Leave the questions alone. Just be loving and go do your thing. Are you going to go to bed? Are you going to go to a meeting? Are you going to get together with friends? Whatever it is that you're going to do. If, you want to have a, if they want to have a conversation and you'd like to join in, fine. But it's not the time when someone is behaving in a way that is either difficult to bear or unacceptable or whatever, it isn't the time to be engaging them in yelling and screaming or, you know, any kind of fixing. And you, again, you observe what you're seeing so that you can remember. And when they are sober the next day, you talk to them about what you saw, just the facts, not, no judgments about it, totally the facts. 
Or might it even be reasonable to uh, walk away and go somewhere else until they're, you know, a ready to sleep idea. it off? You can, absolutely. You can go out for the evening. You can call up a friend. You can go read a book. The thing that, that we teach is that each of us is responsible for our own inner well-being. That, you know, that person in your life isn't there to make you happy. It's not their job to make you feel comfortable. It's your job to do that. They're struggling with their own inner struggles. It's your job to sort out yours. Now, how does the family member learn to do this in a consistent manner? Maybe people can do this once or twice, but it has to be consistent, correct? You are absolutely right. And um, so we, I, would you like to hear about the how I help people do this? Or Absolutely. Is that what yes. you're asking? Oh, yes. okay. I'll be happy to tell you. Um, I work with people in different ways. Some people choose to work with me one-on-one, and we work on this over a 12-week period. I have groups for family members called Balm Family Recovery Group. And I also have a, a new course. I've offered courses over the years on how to be a loving mirror, and it's been once a week. But now I'm offering a very special intensive family recovery education program and it's actually 60 hours of family recovery education and it's 12 weeks long each week has theme and on and each each day is one hour so on monday we have the lesson for instance um let's say that your loved one just got out of treatment or just decided to become abstinent or reduce use and it's we call that, say we're calling it early sobriety, okay, or early recovery. So they're in early recovery. What does that mean for you? So there's a lesson on day one about that. And then on Tuesday of that week, there's a discussion about it. On Wednesday, there's a demonstration of how to be a loving mirror when someone is struggling with their own early sobriety. How can you be helpful and not harmful to their process? And we'll be demonstrating it, talking about it, practicing it. And then on Thursdays, somebody who's in recovery will come and speak to the group about their own experience in early recovery. And people will be able to ask questions. And on Friday, we'll have interviews with experts. So people will uh, come in from treatment centers, from recovery programs of all different kinds, and talk about the topic of the week in this case. early recovery. So it's 12 weeks, there are 12 different themes, and and so we approach it from five different angles during the course of the week so people can really learn about the topic. Everybody gets a digital workbook, and the, um, the course is priced so the whole family can be involved. And can you walk us through the 12 themes? Oh my gosh, I'd love to. Hold on, I have to... That was a very good question, and of course, (laughs) I don't have that in front of me, but give me a minute and I will get it for you. All right. Okay. I'm going to pull it up on my computer. Don't know it off by heart. I don't know mine by heart either. that test. (laughs) Uh, You know, Hams has 17 elements, and there's no way. I can always do the first one. (laughs) Right, and this is, you know, okay, what's the first one? Uh, the first one is the cost-benefit analysis. It's a written exercise. Pros and cons of the 
how you are now and pros and cons of how you want to change. It's the decisional balance sheet, they call it, too. Wonderful, yeah. Okay. And one of... Go ahead, keep going. One of the other ones is, I might as well talk about Amsoil. Yeah, you looking. talk while I'm getting it out. Well, one of the other ones that's in the middle is uh, is drink charting on a calendar or a worksheet or wherever you want to write. Lots of people just use a calendar. Write down the number of drinks you have each day. If it's no drinks, put down a zero and, you know, be sure to measure standard drinks so that you know exactly how much it is. So it's not just one drink at a bar, which can be, you know, six, eight standard drinks if they decide to make them strong, but actually write down the standard number. Tracking is another place a lot of people like to start. And, uh, you know, some people just, they start tracking, their drinking goes down, they say, wow, I'm fixed. And that's all they right. had to do was start tracking. Right. right. And other people want to get, you know, they have a much more, more of a struggle, so they do a whole right. bunch of different exercises. What I love about harm reduction when I teach families about it is the understanding that using drugs and alcohol and abusing drugs and alcohol is on a continuum. It's not that everybody is the same. Mm -hmm. And so what you do really recognizes that. It's wonderful. Okay, I have mine out. You ready? Okay, go ahead. So the first week we talk about supporting your loved one in early recovery, what your role is. And I teach about something called the seven C's. Alanon talks about the four C's, really just about three. And um, so I add, I add the fourth one that was an original Alanon one, which is you don't have to contribute to their problems. And the fifth one is you're connected to your loved one on a level that transcends their drinking or drugging. And the sixth one is you can learn effective communication. And the seventh C is you are always a choice. And that's the first week is really understanding the seven C's and the family's role in early recovery. And week two is all about the stages of change, teaching the stages of change, understanding the difference between enabling and helping, and getting a picture of motivational interviewing. And in week three, uh, letting go is not giving up. And the idea of letting go, it doesn't, by letting go, we don't mean, you know, just let them do whatever and go do your own thing. That's not at all our model. It's letting go emotionally so that you don't get sick along with them. <laughs> and um, so we teach breathing techniques and tools to release negative emotions and how to respond and not react. And we teach about something called flooding, which is really about uh, an uh, automatic response that happens when people get upset and how to reverse the effects of flooding. And in week four, we teach about how to be your addict's best chance at recovery. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that the family can be the best chance and the worst chance. And I want you to forgive me because sometimes I do use the word addict. <laughs> That's okay. I don't, I don't want to hurt you, but I do use it sometimes, and sometimes I don't, and I, I'm conscious of it. I mean, um, I I use it too, depending on you know who my audience is and what kind of a thing I might be writing or right. speaking about. There are times where you can't avoid the word, but right. I really, you know, it's one of my goals is to really make people realize that they are using hate speech. It is as bad as 
saying the N-word to African Americans, you know. At least that's my feeling. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And, um, yeah, labeling hurts. And at the same time, sometimes, for some people, it may be the wake-up call that they need. And for some people, it just makes things worse for them. And probably better to err on the side of being loving, which would be to not label. I mean, yeah, since you mentioned motivational interviewing, that's, uh, you know, first of all, that's just an excellent thing, and that's something that every loved one of a person with chemical problems should learn about. Or I, I think everybody should learn about motivational interviewing. It helps you deal yeah. with everybody yeah. in all circumstances. But uh, that's one of the things you can say, you know, instead of pointing a finger and saying, you're an alcoholic, you have to stop drinking. You can say, you know, you can talk about, you know, well, I know you like to drink, but are there any problems associated with it? Right. And that's a whole different approach. And, it you know. absolutely is, and it's so much more respectful. This is really a great conversation for me because I think about, you know, just labels. I'm, I'm, I may change a lot of my wording just because it's easy. It's easy to say the word addict. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like a. It's easy. Well, That's it's, what labels are for. Labels <laughs> make language easier, but that doesn't mean that it's the best way to go. And I can't tell you I'll be perfect at it, but I'm becoming more conscious as we speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, some other words have fewer syllables than African American too, but we don't use them anymore if we're That's if true. we're conscious. You know. Yeah. Say somebody has yeah, a. I don't know if I. I don't know if I would I would take it as far as you are. I'm going to give it some thought, though. I appreciate your sharing it. That's okay. You don't have to, have to agree with me. Yeah. It's one point of view. I take an extreme right. point of view on this and some other things, but no, nobody has to agree with me. Just, right. you know, be aware that well, all these points of views are out there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it takes a lot more syllables to say, you know, someone with problematic drug use. Right, or someone who's struggling with drugs and alcohol, or um, some of the other, uh, someone who's struggling with addictive behaviors or addictive substances. What do you think about that one? Mm, I think you should leave out addictive. You know, someone who's someone. Well, you know the old the old words. You know, drinking problem or gambling problem. In a way, they make they make sense. You know, if. Uh, I mean, if the gambling's not problematic or drinking's not problematic, there's no reason to make people stop. Right, right. That's good. Interesting. Do you want to hear more about the program? Um, you, I, I will. Talk about. That's okay. Uh, well, if, if we got about half. We got about a third of the way through, but there are lots and lots of topics. You know, it's focusing on yourself, how to, what it really means to be loving. Um, setting and sticking to boundaries, finding the best support for yourself, and healing all of your relationships. Well, I want to get back to the program after a brief diversion here because of some things that you mentioned that I think are really important. Okay. And one that I think is really huge is you mentioned there's a, there's a difference between enabling and helping. Oh, huge difference. And the really, you know, the really traditional Al-Anon 
approach often says, don't do anything to help them. Let them hit bottom. You know, don't call in to work if they're too right. Right. drunk or hungover to go in. And, you know, when the whole family's out on the street, maybe people get a second thought and say, maybe that wasn't yeah. a good idea. It's not a black and, I mean, this is not a black and white thing. It's just not. There's not a uh, cookie-cutter solution for every situation. And that's one of the things that coaches do with families is help them sort out, you know, what's the best thing for your family, not what's best for every family where there's someone struggling with drugs or alcohol. I think that's very important. Mm-hmm. I think the whole hitting bottom thing can also just mislead people, especially if somebody starts practicing harm reduction and their drinking starts getting less problematic, they're drinking less often, and but they're not stopping. And you kind of say, wait a minute, we have to make them hit bottom. We have to make them have more problems. Right. Um, you know, with young people, a lot of times uh, they don't stop completely, but they do drink or drug less. And for some, it's still a big problem, and for others, it isn't. It's not important to find problems where there are none. And very often, I mean, the small steps, the small changes, they can be, they can be the path that the person is taking to either achieve abstinence eventually or to achieve non-problematic use. That's right. I like the story that you tell about when you were working in the uh, with the with the needle exchange program. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Could you tell that story again about the guy who ended up stopping? Do you remember that story? Maybe I can't remember. Like that. <laughs> I can't it's remember. It's a great that. story about how you know you you talk to the person with complete respect and just laid out a bunch of options and they ended up deciding to stop. It's like nobody had, I think it was oh, yeah, a methadone well, yeah. clinic or something. And yes, just, oh, I, I know what you're talking about. It was more of a generic case, but what happens so often in needle exchange is that uh, the people come in to get syringes uh, and clean ones and, you know, you're taught very, you're taught if it's a good needle exchange that you thank them for bringing in any used ones, and even if they don't bring in used ones, you thank them for using clean ones because you're helping prevent disease. You tell them that they're doing a great service and thank them and say, you know, these are always here for you, and, you know, we hope that you always use clean ones, and you don't have to share dirty ones because these are free. And, you know, people keep coming back because, you know, in the old days of needle exchange when it was very young, people might say, um, you don't look so good, I think you need to go into treatment, maybe you need to stop using, and people left, and they'd rather use, they'd rather share needles than hear, be preached at. But if you approach them with this thing of thank you for bringing in dirty ones, used ones, getting them off the street, you did a great service, thank you for using clean ones, you're doing a great service, and people, they start feeling like they're being treated like a human being. And after a while, after three weeks, a few months, uh, all of a sudden people will say, you know, I don't think I want to sh- shoot heroin anymore. It's I don't like this. I don't like this. What can I do to make changes? And when they ask you, you know, that's when they're ready. That's when they're motivated. Right. And, and, you know, but if you preached at them and said, well, 
here, you can have these needles on condition that you read this literature about how bad heroin is. You know, no, won't work. So you were you were being loving in the way you dealt with them. Absolutely, absolutely, and so many people, you know, after a while, they say, "Uh, "Do you have any literature on methadone? Do you have any literature on buprenorphine? Can you give me a referral to treatment?" They'll ask all by themselves. Okay, well, let's get back to, um, we were, well, hitting bottom is just not necessary for everybody. Um, it's actually No, in fact, not, you know, I like the, the expression prevention is the early, like, prevention is early intervention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I like about that statement is that when you see someone doing something that's harmful to them or potentially harmful to them, instead of putting your head in the sand or yelling or screaming, if you use the loving mirror approach and you say, let's just take cigarette smoking. Your loved one is smoking cigarettes and they tried to quit before and there they are smoking again. And you say, wow, I, I can see you're really struggling with your smoking. And they say, oh, it's not that bad. Well, you know, you, you've tried to quit so many times, and there you are smoking again. I really feel for you. Instead of, gosh, you're smelling up the house. I can't stand it anymore. And meanwhile, the family member, yes, maybe they're smelling up the house, but the family member's thinking they're going to die, they're, it's going to become cancer. And so our fears become these irrational, mean ways of behaving that we can turn around and just be loving. And as you described with the needle exchange, when we're loving with people, they're more open to talking about what's really going on with them and perhaps making changes. Acceptance and um, tolerance bring much better results than um, nastiness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, people, um, you know, the uh, clientele at needle exchanges, they they say this all the time. You know, this is the only place where people treat me like a human being. This is the only place where I can be myself and, you know, I talk about what I do. And people treat me like a human being. Because it is not, there. I mean, there is no, there's nothing more stigmatized in the United States that I can think of than to be a drug user, particularly to be an intravenous drug user shooting heroin. And, you know, it's just, ah, that's a terrible junkie. That's a monster. It's a demon. Get away. Save your children. And, you know, you talk to these people and they're just, they're just like everybody else. You know, and you do, you work at Neil Exchange and you see all these different people coming in. Some of them are in their business suit. They got a full-time job, the, you know, executive somewhere. Um, and some of them are homeless. It's the whole range of society. Yes. And these these people are somebody's wife, somebody's mother, somebody's father, somebody's son, somebody's brother. And the people that I work with are their are their mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. And um, the more I work with families, the more I see the beauty in their children and their spouses whether they're using or not, you know. I mean, it's just underneath the surface. One of the most beautiful things that happens in working with families is uh, a lot of times people will come in and they're really they're really upset with their addict. 
and I remember one mom said, I haven't had a civil conversation with him in five years. And I said, really? Why is that? She said, because I'm so mad at him. Look what he's doing. I said, well, what were to happen? What would happen if tonight when he came home, you, instead of seeing the drug addict that you see, you saw the little boy that you raised and you felt the love that you feel and you went over and gave him a hug and said, hi, honey, good to see you. What do you think would happen then? And she started to cry. And she decided, and we talked some more, and she decided to try it. And within a few months, she and her son had a restored relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this happens again and again. I had a mother um, who I've been working with for six months who had the most wonderful Mother's Day, and she attributes it completely to the Be a Loving Mirror work. She said, this has turned around my family. I thank you. And I'm very grateful to be a part of something that's healing families. Not everyone is going to make a decision to stop using drugs, but that doesn't make them a monster or an animal. They may they may reduce harm and they may struggle the rest of their life and they may stop for a while and start for a while, but these are people. These are our brothers and our sisters and our aunts and our uncles. And, you know, we just need to learn a different way of approaching the challenges that being in relationship with them presents so that we can be more useful in their journey and less harmful to them and ourselves moving forward. Yeah, that is just absolutely <laughs> so true. Um, well, I'm almost tempted to stop there, but I think I'm going to let you summarize <laughs> the, the, the rest of the the rest of the uh, twelve uh, quickly here. Okay. Let me get to the page again. I'm flying down the pages. Okay. So, um, coming up. So, you know, we talk about getting your focus off of the other person and onto yourself. And people say, why should I do that? I'm not the one with the problem. Well, yeah. If you're obsessing about somebody day and night, chances are you're not taking care of yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and it's time to start doing that. And we work on that in class. You know, have you gone to the dentist lately? Have you been, Have you had a physical? What have you done to take care of yourself? And what are you doing to be a happy person? We talk a lot about happiness and how it's an inside job. And then in week six, we talk about what it really means to be loving and how different being loving is from being nice. And I like to say it like this, being nice, you know, being nice is um, doing whatever the person wants you to do just because they want you to do it. And that's not being a thinking person. Mm. Uh, You know, being loving means allowing the person to take responsibility for their life Mm -hmm. and supporting them in that. And not doing it like, get out, but working it through, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and treating people with dignity and respect no matter what, seeing everyone as a worthwhile person. And you can't really do that unless you love yourself first. So we talk about that as well. And then, of course, there's setting and sticking to boundaries. 
There's healthy boundaries. There's unhealthy boundaries. And um, we talk about what that means. What is a healthy boundary? What is an unhealthy boundary? And then people have blocks within themselves to setting boundaries. So we work on those. Now, of course, we work on these things intensively in coaching, in group coaching and individual coaching. In the class, we have a lesson on it. They have worksheet, you know, a workbook assignment. We have discussions. We have demonstrations. We have speakers. We have experts. We're not doing the same kind of deep inner work that you would do in a coaching session because mm-hmm. it's a classroom setting with lots of people in it. But it's a wonderful introduction for somebody who really wants to have a good, strong overview and, and get a chance to start really thinking about important issues life-or-death issues in their family. And then, you know, people have to decide what kind of support they're going to get. Are they going to go to HAMS? Are they going to go to a 12-step program? Are they going to go to Smart Recovery for families? Are they going to get a therapist, a recovery coach, a sponsor? And we talk about, you know, what are all those things? What happens with each of those? And what's the best thing for you? And then the last uh, few weeks, We talk about healing your relationships, your relationship with the sacred, whatever that means to you, if it means anything, something beyond the ego, healing your relationship with yourself and healing your relationships with others. And I've done a lot of work in this area and a lot of good material with with the families that I work with. And finally, we culminate in, you know, being a loving mirror, having that calm practice, responding rather than reacting living your life authentically and in peace, peace on the inside, peace on the outside. So that's the program overview, and of course there's lots and lots in the program that I can't describe in 20 minutes. Okay, well I think that covers it now. Where can people find you on the web, and how can they get in touch with you, and how can they do the program? Do you, and do you have books? Yes, I do. If you go to familyrecoveryresources.com, at the top of the page, you'll see there's a link for what we offer, which is all about our coaching programs, and then there's a link for the Daily Balm course. You can click on that, and you can read all about it. The neat thing about the Daily Balm is it's a telecourse. It's totally on the phone, so you can be anywhere in the country or the world and be part of this call. And so... um, if your son is in treatment in Florida and you live in Washington State, you can still get good family recovery education with the Daily Balm. And that um, that's our next session starts on June 3rd. Okay. And, oh, you, you can also reach me. You can reach me by phone, and our phone number is 888-998. 
Okay, very good. What would you like to leave us with this evening? Your parting words. Oh, I guess the the most important thing is loving yourself, finding a place within yourself that is calm, and treating others with dignity and respect on the basis of your own inner peace. It might sound like it's a um, might sound like it's a dream, but it's really not that hard. It just takes some practice. And the way this relates to being related to someone who's struggling with drugs and alcohol is that when you are that peaceful presence in a family, they want it. They want it too. And that's when you get to have your influence. That's when they're open to what you have to say. And that's when they'll be open with you about when they're ready to get help. It'll be a loving mirror. Okay. Thank you for being our guest this evening, Beverly Butcher. Thank you so much, Ken. And we'll be back next week. I haven't uh, booked a guest yet, but we'll see you all next so every next week. So everyone, good night. <laughs>